Welcome to the Hassle-Free RE Podcast, a real estate podcast where we bring you stories, education, and tips for investors and real estate enthusiasts. If you're interested in investing in real estate or just want to keep a pulse on what's happening in the market, then this podcast is for you. Thanks so much for listening and tuning in. If you enjoy our show, please make sure to subscribe and give us a five-star review. We'd greatly appreciate it. This podcast is brought to you by the Five Star Co-host, an Airbnb management and consulting company that helps homeowners turn their properties into passive income streams through short-term rentals. Do you want to turn your vacation house into a passive income stream? Then look no further. The Five Star Co-host has served over a thousand guests in several Airbnb properties and in varying markets. The STR Co-host or the Five Star Co-host is at the vanguard of the short-term rental industry by leveraging technology systems to maximize the guest experience while achieving high revenue for owners. Get a free home analysis by emailing the five-star co-host at gmail.com. That's the five-star co-host at gmail.com. T-H-E-F-I-V-E-S-T-A-R-C-O-H-O-S-T at gmail.com. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hassle-Free RE Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Menapace, and here's my co-host. Kim Menapace. So with that, we have a, a very special guest for you today. His name is Ryan Bakey. So Ryan has a background in accounting and finance, and right out of college, Ryan went to work for Deloitte Consulting. He consulted there with the top five investment bank, working on their real estate syndications and head fund transactions. After almost two years at Deloitte, Ryan decided that he wanted to help the average investor. So he started his firm, MLS Consulting PLLC. Ryan, uh, MLS Consulting PLLC serves real estate investors and helps them with tax strategy and filing. Ryan has saved millions of dollars for his clients. Ryan's also an investor himself, owning uh, several multifamily and short-term rental properties. He also has a love for personal finance and is always looking to spread the good news of investing. I'll also add that he's a fantastic public speaker. We got to see him present in Nashville, and I think he's pretty good at podcasts too. So without further ado, Ryan, why don't you uh, introduce yourself? Welcome. Uh, thanks for the introduction. You know, uh, I haven't said this before in, in public, but my dream job was actually to be a motivational speaker. Like I wanted to be able to motivate and inspire other people. Uh, you know, I don't have like a coming to truth story or like a really hard upbringing or background. I was always middle class, but I always wanted to be a motivational speaker and like the CPA sort of tax was my backup plan. But what's interesting is even in Nashville and all the conferences that I attend and speak at and just consulting and coaching clients one-on-one, I find that I get to channel the urge to be a motivational speaker in the work that I get to do, the technical work that I get to do day to day. So I'm being able, I'm able to live that dream of being motivational and inspiring other people with the work combined with the technical knowledge of the work that I do. And it's just, it's just the best thing. I love my job. So. And, and there's like millions of people that benefit from the work that you do and also like what you've been coaching and teaching and what you've been sharing on your podcast as well. So uh, you're accomplishing big things real quick, man. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I guess a little background. So I studied accounting and finance in school. So I always had a very a good grasp of you know how to read a profit and loss statement. If I have a stream of cash flows, I can discount that back to today and figure out what that investment's worth today or in the future, those type of activities. It wasn't until, what's interesting is I come from, uh, I'm a Dave Ramsey disciple. So I learned how to you know get out of debt as soon as possible and start investing in retirement accounts. But it wasn't until I got into the real world and I was seeing what the rich and wealthy were doing, they were getting into debt to buy income producing assets and they, they were getting out of retirement accounts. So I had this like paradigm shift uh, when I started working. I'm like, oh, this is how it's really supposed to be. And so not to discredit Dave Ramsey, I think for 80% of America, his advice is great. But for that other percent of America where they're, they're out of debt, they have their emergency fund and they're ready to build wealth, I think using leverage uh, is a great tool. Um, and how would I change it? Furthermore, I would say that my ideal client is that person. It's not the everyday investor, I would say, but it's the person that wants to change their family tree and wants to learn how to use uh, wealth building strategies such as you know retirement savings, Roth IRAs, using real estate, using leverage, of course, to uh, achieve that. And some of the some of the value that I get out of the work that I do is is very hard to quantify. Um, because the knowledge I'm giving to one person that they're going to spread it on their family and then eventually that changes their family tree is just, it's worth more than anything that I could ever get paid for. So. That's a, that's a super powerful comment, actually. And, you know, the, already I, I like, I, I have some great questions lined up, but, you know, I do think that you've touched on a really important point. And it, w- one thing that's really cool about real estate is it really doesn't matter where you've come from, right? It's, it's usually what, like what's going on up here. And what I found also is that the most successful people in real estate that we've met, um, at least over the last few years are usually the people that, you know, are definitely not the smartest, but are always the most resourceful. Like when their backs against the wall, like they can figure out a solution to a problem. And I think that like, sort of, as you said, leveraging debt is one of those mechanisms that is a solution to a problem, right? And so it is, it is really, really neat. And it's a super rewarding field for that very reason. Right. So yeah, it doesn't, real estate doesn't, doesn't care about your background, like where you come from. It's just uh, what, like what TJ Tajani said, like, you need three things, right? You need um, time, you need experience, and you need the capital to do a deal. And so oftentimes, most people will have all three with their first couple of deals, or you don't have all three, like maybe you have the capital, but you don't have the time and the experience necessary to do a deal. Okay, so then you invest in somebody else or invest in like in a, a syndication or apartment building, etc. Or maybe you maybe you do have the time and experience because you're full time in real estate, but you may not have the capital or want to bring your own capital. So then you can leverage other people who have that thing that you don't. And so real estate's all just bringing people from different backgrounds together. And that's what a great segue into like the tax part of this uh, podcast we'll get into yeah. is that the reason why the government um, incentivizes real estate owners and a business investor, business owners, is that you're giving back to the community. So if you think about the amount of people that are getting paid on every single real estate transaction, like you have agents that are getting paid, the title company, lawyers, attorneys, accountants, the, um, we said the commissions already, the cleaners for that rental, the tenants or guests that are going to get to stay there, that local economy is getting uh, spruced up because now there's more traffic in that area. 
everybody's getting uh, blessed in real estate, like real estate blesses everybody. And that's why the government wants to incentivize those behaviors. They, and then the same thing on the business ownership side, like if I employ, if I employ a few employees, like they're going to have money to go and, you know, feed their families, do good in their community. And it's just like a circle of life. So what was, uh, what was sort of the two, two questions and you don't have to answer them at the same time, but you know, what was sort of the light bulb moment when you kind of started to go from the, um, like no debt Dave Ramsey to, you know, being a consultant and all of a sudden seeing like, oh my God, there's a major opportunity here. And then how did that transition into you sort of starting your own firm? So I would say two things on that. I would say um, the first one is that the, the economy and the United States of America is a very, you know, capitalist economy is a very good uh, at competing with other people. So if, you know, Apple has a product, Google has a product, they're all competing against each other to make it better. And in competition, that either does a few things. It either makes the quality of the good better or the service or the delivery faster, or it lowers the price. And it's the same thing, it's the same thing in real estate. And so I, I learned sort of that, I guess it would be that, but I also learned that the, like the upper middle, you know, upper middle class, rich and wealthy people, they live at a different pace than other people. They're, they have like cheat codes. And one of the things that I noticed too that I just spoke on is that I would see people that would take out like 15 year balloon payment loans where they were just paying interest only for the first uh, 15 years. And then before the balloon was due, they would re refinance out of that loan. And because of the property is appreciated in value or they've been able to um, boost NOI and cap rates and they're able to just refinance out of that loan or sell it before the balloon comes due. And I was like, man, they're like operating at a different realm and like stratosphere than everybody else. Like a different, they're basically playing, you know, the same card game, but they're at different tables. They're just a different sort of uh, mindset. And what I wanted to do is bring light of that and bring conversation to help like the everyday person. And so like at my firm, you the, the number one thing that I do is I, and cause I was asked earlier, like, who's the top, who's your ideal person that you're trying to work with? Are you trying to work with somebody who hasn't gotten started yet, or maybe has a few properties or is full scale, you know, dozens of properties. And the answer is it's everybody because I have something to offer for every single real estate investor, no matter where they're at. So, and, and the way I do that is I tier it up and I have a tier system. So let's say for example, like a tier one person or a tier one referral is going to be somebody that qualifies to work one-on-one -on -one directly with me or my firm. Right. A tier two person, maybe it's, Hey, they have a couple deals, but you know, they're still on the fence and I don't think I could provide as much opportunity for them working one-on-one. -on -one. So here's at, you know, my podcast is free. My YouTube channel is free. My content's all completely free, right? They don't have to pay anything for it. But I also have like, you know, boot camps and webinars and recordings that people can purchase. I want to do a course, but I'm working on the, the legality of that. And then I would say a tier three person is a person that, you know, maybe they're really just getting started. They want to learn and like do self-study and education. I have products for that too. So the answer to that is I wanted to be able to help. I want to be able to help everybody, no matter where they're at in their journey. It just looks, it's just different capacity depending on the work. What's kind of cool about the, that though, is you can, you know, with these different tiers, you can sort of meet people where they're at mm. too, right? Cause you know, there's only one Ryan, right. And at some point you got to sleep and enjoy some weekends and, and yes. do what it is you do. So, um, 
that just gives me a lot of thought for like some of the things Kim and I have thought about for future and like helping other people or coaching or mentoring. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and so before we kind of, cause I, I definitely want to like dive into some of the tax stuff. Um, let's, let's talk about sort of like your journey as just like in some of the public speaking fashion, you know, sort of what you've done and, you know, what are, what are some of Ryan's goals and that and sort of spreading what you do and, and where you want to take that uh, sort of side of your business? Yeah. So I would say it all started with, I didn't read a book. I didn't read like a publication or anything that taught me this, but looking back on it now, what I did was become a person of interest. And so that's what my, one of my, in uh, Bill Face mastermind, a mastermind right. named Chris, he's like, he's like, you're the person of interest in the work that you do. And I'm like, explain that to me. He goes, whenever somebody has a conversation about this, you're the one that they think about. You're the person of interest. And that's all that I did the, leading up to when I got to spoke in Nashville in June. And then even, even today when I'm going to go to Austin, Vegas, Nashville, Charleston, I'm going to all these different cities to speak on what I do is because I'm the person of interest. And the way I, the way that happened and it, it really all started in, you know, I created my own Facebook group that all I did was dive into tax strategy for real estate investors. I was lucky enough to join Bill's group, which at the time, Bill Face uh, Facebook group, public Facebook group had, I want to say three to 4,000 members at the time when I joined it. All I did when I first started off, like my education, I would just respond to posts. I would just comment, hey, you know, my name's Ryan. I'm an investor, CPA. Here's my feedback that I can provide on your situation. Like, oh, they're, oh, I should, I'm trying to sell a property. Should I sell it this year or next year, right? And I wouldn't be able to like completely answer the question, but I would be able to point them in the right direction or get the right or have them figure out the right knowledge. So then they would obviously reach out to me for a consultation or, you know, reach, reach out to me over DM. And it got to the point where I would keep doing that in his group. People would just keep tagging me. They're like, oh, I don't know the answer, but this guy does, right? They would tag me. So I became the person of interest. And then what happened was, is uh, Bill, Bill had reached out and he's like, He's like, I see you're, you know, you comment on, you know, all these posts all the time. You never ask for anything in return. He's like, I want you to present to my mastermind group, which at the time only had 30 or 40 people. So this was probably May, 2021, I would say. I did a Zoom presentation just like this in front of 30 or 40 of his mastermind members explaining all the tax strategy and the benefits. And everybody was absolutely stunned, right? Like literally like jaw drops, so many questions and like, you know, what is this? And so he, he, I became that person of interest. He, he then invited me, I want to say it was October, 2021. He invited me to a boot camp that he had in Nashville. There's about, and this is why it's important. There's about, I want to say 90 people there. There's 90 people that were in the audience. And I spoke on stage. It's my first time doing that. I was actually still at my former employer when I was speaking there. Right. So I like took a day off work to go do that, to come back. Right. And I spoke on that stage and I said, how many people have heard of what a cost segregation study is? And in the entire room of 90 people, only four people raised their hand. And then I said, well, how many people have actually done one? Only one hand was raised. And to see that transition from then until like Nashville, when I asked, half of people's hands were raised. Everybody's hand was raised because now they, they have, there's more attention and more conversation to that part of it. And leading from October to Nashville, um, somewhere in there, I went to Gulf Shores, Alabama. Uh, I want to say January, February for Bill's group. He invited me to become a member of the mastermind. Uh, so I do, you know, I help out mastermind members with tax strategy. And then it was some, it was sometime at that Gulf Shores event that he's like, it was probably in February. He goes, Hey, do you want to speak in front of a thousand people in June? And I'm like, sign me up. I'm there. 
right? And so that was, that's kind of how the transition of how I be, I would say became that person of interest. And it all started with giving because if you live, like no matter what you're doing in life, if you're always giving more than you're taking out of this world, like you're going to provide a lot of value to people. And it's, um, you know, my dad would always say like, leave things better the way you found them. Leave, you know, people say, oh, put back the stuff the way you found it. The, the, the good thing to do is leave things better than the way you found them. And I think if you kind of pour that energy out into the world, you're going to receive more than you can handle in return. You answered a question I had, which is how you came to present in Nashville in June. I didn't get to go to that conference. Dave did. And uh, it was really cool to see you hear that story arc. And I think um, what I, I like about your story is that you are passionate about this. And I think that came through with all this advice you were giving and just wanting to be helpful and, and answer questions and, and help direct people in the right direction, even if it wasn't you who knew the answer. And that, as you said, was able to give more back to you than you ever could have handled uh, where you have all these amazing opportunities and continue to do what you're passionate about. And Dave and I are uh, have such an appreciation for tax strategy and all the uh, uh, strategies you can employ for financing properties. And uh, it's very cool to, we don't want to learn it all ourselves that new. We think we have different passion and interest and, and strengths, but we really love and admire uh, being able to talk to people like you who um, can share that knowledge and get us excited about it and to and partner in some way, shape or form. So very, mm -hmm. very awesome to hear that story and how you came about, because I was very curious how you uh, present, uh, came about presenting in Nashville. Yeah, I was, no, I was uh, too. <laughs> that was the first time I've actually told it, I think. So nice. You're getting the unscripted version. Yeah. Nice. I, I would like to rewind and actually hear about your personal journey as an investor. Because I think uh, Dave and I shared that we have uh, people who listen to this podcast who are sitting on the sidelines, own a primary house, are itching to get into investing, usually a short-term rental vacation home, but are open to exploring other options. And I understand you are an investor yourself. So switching gears a little bit from your professional motivational speaker, CPA background, uh, walk us, I'd love you for you to walk us through your journey and becoming an investor and owning properties yourself. Yeah. So what did it for me was there is so much buildup and just because of my background, there is that paralysis analysis of like, is this deal going to make me money? Is it going, you know, am I going to lose something? Um, Cause I bought my first property when I was 23 years old. Everybody thought I was crazy, right? My mom told me I was crazy. My, my, not, my girlfriend at the time, not fiance told me I was crazy. Everybody in your circle, especially if it's your first investment property and you're not friends with investors, will tell you you are crazy and that you're like, you're not going to make money. Oh, you're a slumlord. I've heard it. I heard it all. Right. And what I'm here to tell you is that a, a fish can only grow to the size of the bowl that it's in. You have to find a different fish tank to swim in. And what that means is like, if you're wanting to buy your first property, don't go hang out with people who have never bought an investment property before hang out with people like you guys who've already done multiple deals and, and you're able to show them like, oh, this is what you have to do, this, this, that, and the other. And then it doesn't seem as intimidating to that person. So like the number one thing I had to do is I, and I don't mean this to be rude or like to cut off people, plus I had to find a different bowl to swim in. And so that's when I like reached out, you know, the bigger pockets for them. And I got friends in real estate, like people that I've talked to virtually like this, who I then met in person for the first time months later, right? I would say you have to get out of a different fishbowl. 
Um, well, when you're just starting off, like, especially if you're young in your career, uh, house hacking is a great way to get started because it's very, I would say, low risk compared to, you know, owning property out, you know, owning property and being, um, having to manage it from a little bit away. House hacking is the way that I got started. And I think everybody knows, but just to clarify, it's, it's where you buy a multifamily property and you live in one of the units and then you rent out the other ones. And the idea is to me, it's, it's not going to make, it's not going to make you a home run. It's not going to, um, it's not going to make you a home run, but what it'll do is it's going to get you on base. It's going to get you out of the batter's box and it's going to get you like up to the plate or right. Or even on first base. And it's from house hacking that you kind of learn, okay, this is what it looks like to register the insurance in my name or the utility bill or the gas, whatever, and learn. It's almost like training wheels for real estate. That's what house hacking is. And I will tell you that once you learn, okay, I'm using other people's money, which at the time I was only paying 2.85%, which was amazing. I bought my first couple of houses like that, like really like cheap, right? I'm using other people's money. And because with house hacking, what it will do, especially for people just starting off is it's going to cut your number one largest expense you have every single month, which is your mortgage, which is your cost of living, your housing payment. And so I was able to cut, cut my, you know, my housing from, let's say $1,300 a month down to 400 by house hacking which is huge. And you learn from that. And what I will say is once you do find yourself in that other fishbowl, you'd be crazy to see what happens because the first, the first year I bought real estate, I only bought one property. I'm already up to three the next year. Right. And so that velocity of how that works, because I was thinking that, Oh, you know, I'll buy one property every single year for a few years and see what that, it just, it just happens. And so, you know, I go from buying one to then buying three the next year and then I'm also working on um, the largest deal that I've ever done, which is a, a, a an almost $4 million um, campground. I haven't told awesome. you about it yet, David. Um, that is cool. So it the velocity at which it works, a lot of people think it's um, it's linear, but it's not. It's accelerated growth. It's like an inverted, it's an inverted, um, what is it, a U, right? It's like, yeah, you start here and it, it takes a while to get going, but then it's like, once you, once you get going and investing, it's just straight accelerate because then it's like, okay, I ran out, right? Um, I did four deals. I don't have any more capital, but I have the knowledge now and I have the time now. So let me go leverage other people's capital, right? Or, okay, maybe I've ran out of capital, but I have the, I have those other um, assets, right? When we talk about the three things that you need for real estate. So my, my, like my advice would be, you know, make sure the deal pencils out, but just really just get started. Um, and even if you're not, like, if you're sitting on the sidelines, not buying, run deals. It's just like muscle memory. So even people are like, oh, I don't want to buy because the interest rates are high right now. You should still be like running deals just for the analysis of, of just for like the, the reps. Um, I had a, I never even said, but I had a college athlete background and we would talk about reps so much, just getting right. into the gym and getting used to that. So then when the deal pops up, it's, it, it's your system. It's your, okay, I'm going to plug it into my calculator. It's going to take me five minutes to figure out if it's a good deal or not. And if it is, then I'm going to do further due diligence on this, that, the specifics, right? And so I think just getting started is more important than anything because it opens up so much. And you'll, you'll learn more in your first deal than you'll ever learn, like reading these books that I have back here or anything else. Um, so like one of the first things I learned with investing is the time between when you order the appraisal and when you get the inspection. Because I had, as soon as I was under contract, I was like, all right, cool. You need to order the appraisal. You need to get an inspector. I had ordered the appraisal, paid for the appraisal. Of course, it wasn't done for like two or three weeks, but I also then had the inspection report. And what happened? Well, the house, you know, 
the house, it had too many things wrong with it and I wanted to back out. Well, here I am out 500 bucks for an appraisal. And so luckily my lender was like, oh, we'll apply that appraisal to your next house. But that was a $500 mistake that I almost made that now anybody of my friend or my circle, people that talk to me, they will not make that mistake because I'm going to be there to help them and, and just tell them that simple thing. Or even back to a deal that I was trying to do a few weeks ago, a short-term rental deal, which is a whole different ballgame than long-term rentals is you have to deal with the regulations. So I, you know, we looked at this property, analyzed it, pro forma, did everything that we did, needed to do. Uh, I had attorneys review the, the contract because there's specific performance needed by the seller. And it turns out I can't even have it as a short-term rental because there's no parking. Had I have known that the parking was going to be an issue on the front end, I would have never have done, I would have never wasted those 10 hours of my life. So doing, just doing the process, it's just like building muscle. It's like, you'll, you'll never forget. It's like, now I know, okay, for the next long-term rental or short-term rental that I'm buying, here's what I need to look for. So. I like, I love that. And you said like a, a couple super really important things in that you're right. It's all about getting these reps, right? Because not only do you start to be able to find like where the capital is going to come from or piece together some really neat and like unique deals, but you know, there's learning, like no house, no two houses are the same, just like no two people are the same. Even if you're in Nashville and you see 10 of those like row houses, they're all Airbnbs right next to each other. Like none of them are the same. One's going to have a different toilet or furniture. Something's going to go on. And that was, you know, we've learned that a few times because we did several burrs out of state and there's just something to learn with every single house. But then, mm -hmm. you know, we have multiple short-term rentals and they're in completely different markets, completely different types of clients. And, you know, we, I sort of say this jokingly, but you get a little bit calloused. Everything becomes a little bit less stressful once you've done it a few times. You start to know where to find the solutions for things or you can tap into learnings from before. But then tying that into something earlier that you said, like that, you, you if you take that, that knowledge and you apply it to being a, a person of interest within your sphere, like that is all stuff that you can pull from, you know, and like as a real estate agent, this is a little bit off topic, but a lot of uh, agents struggle um, on like the social media front. And no matter what you say, unless you've been an agent for 20 years and you just have like a really deep clientele, you gotta, you have to always be marketing, right? And it's like, mm. there's off of like one single deal, there's like 15 different things you can post about. And just like in short-term rentals and everything you're learning or long-term rentals, like everything you're learning, those are all just different ways of giving back. But uh, to your point, it, it's definitely a hockey stick. But if you just don't get in or pretend you want it, but you just aren't true to yourself that you don't, <laughs> then it's just never going to start. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah. Oh. I would say one last thing. And for people who are really on the fence, like if they can stomach house hacking, it's a great way to get started because it's like the lowest risk. Even if you just do right. like a 5% conventional, you know, minimal money down, at least it gives you that, that to get off those training wheels and see if this is something that's right for you or not. Right. And then, and then you learn, okay, you know, I, I would prefer the stock market or I'd prefer retirement accounts. Okay. But at least you like learn from that, you know, uh, like how it is to be a landlord or uh, Airbnb host, et cetera. I think that the, what you learn, not just house hacking, but trying to buy 
a house period, even if it's a single family. I liked what you said about just getting reps in. Dave has that conversation with his clients who are trying to buy their first primary. Some were thinking of house hacking, some not, but uh, they get uh, it's so emotional going through the the offer and negotiation and due diligence phases. And when they fall through, Dave said, hey, we're just getting more reps in. Don't worry. We, you know, now we've learned a lot from this experience to apply to the next one. So I think that was one of, I think, three things that resonated from what you just said. The second one being uh, you learn a lot on house maintenance too. I think we don't all have this built-in owner's handbook for how to maintain in a house. And and I think that Dave and I bought our first prime our primary house six years ago, and we've learned a ton from this one. And then our short-term rentals we own as well. I, I joke that we probably take care of our short-term rentals more and do more updates to them than than our primary because we look at it as our primary as an expense rather than an asset right now. And um. So I think that's something that house hacking or just home ownership with your first home, you learn a ton about that you can apply to more real estate ventures and investments in the future. And then the third thing I liked about, uh, you talked about the fishbowl and how you're, you're just going to uh, fit grow to fit the size of what you're in. And if you want to augment yourself, you've got to really put yourself in a new fish tank that's bigger and with people mm -hmm. who are uh, beyond your capabilities and your success. And um, I actually went to a conference right after the short-term rental one in Miami for my, my day job on product management. And there was this phrase that I felt was very applicable in the, the corporate world, but less in the real estate world, which was we typically promote people to incompetence instead of coaching them to competence. So typically you mm. start doing the job of the director level or whatever it is. And then they, they finally give you that title and promote and say, yes, you're, 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 you're achieving that director level. Or that's the way you should be it, it, that we typically would work. Sometimes you do promote people to a director or people manager, and they don't know those skills yet. And so they struggle. And I think with real estate, you kind of have to jump into a, a level of incompetence above your comfort zone, learn, gain the experience, figure out the capital, uh, and then gr grow from there and see, do you like this? Uh, it, it, are there people you need to leverage to help better your skills and your management of your properties? And then you go to the next level of incompetence and stretch yourself. Uh, but I, it was just interesting hearing that and seeing some parallels and some differences. I think that you're always going to be, uh, you need to step out of your comfort zone and um, stretch yourself in order to grow in real estate and investing. And there's a lot of on-the-job learning there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and just for like any of our listeners too, that want to learn, like, how do I get in a room with somebody that's done this stuff before? Like there's, there's a, some free ways to be able to do it. I mean, if you just go on Facebook or um, like Eventbrite or any of those, you'll definitely find different local meetups. Like meetups are a really great place to start getting out of your comfort zone. Kim and I would go to meetups back like long before kids, long before investment properties, but we'd go to those and just kind of get a sense of like what's happening in this field. And then we sort of stepped that up a little bit and we started going to conferences where other people were doing exactly what we want, we aspire to grow into. Um, and then you can even take it a step further. So like, as Ryan mentioned, uh, Bill Faith runs a mastermind. I think there's probably like what a couple, a few hundred people in it at this point, maybe, or close to that. We're about 70 or 80. Yeah. 70 or 80. I, I was thinking of Mike's Mike Shogren's as well, but there's these different, you know, masterminds and accountability groups and coaching and like anything 
that you could think of. And you don't need to be a big time investor to be part of those. If you have a little bit of capital and some time, you can get a ton of education in those and really get all the support that you need. Um, and sometimes, you know, I'm not saying like <laughs> cut out your family because they don't want you to buy a house, but you just got to pick and choose what you're going to let influence you or not and just have a little bit of a cold shoulder to other things. Um, so maybe with that, we could start to segue and uh, really pick Ryan's brain a bit. I think it would be really awesome both for um, people that are buying like a primary home or looking to get into investment properties and things like that to really start to talk about some of like the tax benefits of real estate. And because, you know, I think it's no secret, the, you know, th there's a reason why 90% of millionaires have their hand in real estate in some way, shape or form. So maybe we could just start on a basic level and we'll just kind of build, build the, build the house up from the foundation, if you will. Yeah. So the, the way that I tell people is, it's not how much money you make, but it's how you make it. It's, it's not how much, but how. And it's the vehicle in which you're making your money. And so when you think about like a doctor or a, you know, a, a lawyer making, let's say, $400,000, half a million dollars a year at their job, that's earned income. It's also the hardest to shelter from taxation. So you could have retirement accounts. You can have more babies, HSA accounts. Those are all about you can do to shelter that. But that, that same income coming in from rental properties um, could be potentially taxed at zero. So right away, like every single dollar that you receive from rental properties is not subject to self-employment tax or FICA tax is what, what we call it. And so you're already saving an additional 7.65% by having rental income as opposed to earned income from your job. Uh, furthermore is as those assets go up in value over time and you potentially, and you sell them, the you have favorable uh, capital gains tax rates. So for example, most people, when they go to sell a house, a rental property, they're only paying 15 or 20% in taxes to sell the property, as opposed to if they would, let's say they had that same $100,000 gain at their W-2 job, they could be falling in a 24, 32, 30, you know, 35% tax bracket. So it's not how much you make, but it's how you make it. And then more so this idea of leverage, right? Because you can, you know, let's just say a hundred thousand dollar property I'm buying, I could put 20% down. I get appreciation on the hundred thousand dollar nest egg, right? I don't, if I put 20,000 in the stock market, I'm only getting 20,000. I'm only getting appreciation on that 20,000. Real estate allows you to lever up and now you're earning equity on that hundred thousand piece rather than the 20,000. And then more so is that depreciation idea that we, we've, I've talked about before is that you get this phantom expense that you don't have to come out of pocket for. And most of the time, I would say most long-term rental properties, normal depreciation, the properties will be operating at a tax loss for the first five to seven years. And so what that means is, you know, like on this long-term rental that I'm sitting in right now, you know, I might have, let's say net income, I might have $19,000, $20,000 of income from this property. But the depreciation that I'm getting on this property is going to be anywhere between 24 to $25,000 per year. So I'm showing on paper, hey, I have $19,000, $20,000 of income that's hitting my bank account, but I get to turn around and tell the IRS that I actually lost money on paper, and then I don't get taxed on that income stream. And so you'll find that the, the name of the game really is how quickly can you take your active or earned income streams uh, where you're paying the high tax rate, and it is the hardest to offset, 
And how can you convert those over to passive activities as quick as possible? Because the more that you convert over to passive and you have those passive income streams, the more favorable you get taxed, if not at all. And the last piece of that is the leverage, is borrowing against that value. So as my property goes up from 100 to $200,000, I have what's called an ascension to wealth. An ascension to wealth is when I wake up the next day with more money than I had the day before. 99% of the time, if I have more money than the day before, I'm going to get taxed on it, but not in real estate, right? If I buy a property for 100 and I put work into it, and now it's worth 200 and I borrow against it, it's not a taxable event. So people are able to build their net worth up in real estate without getting taxed, right? Um, and the, I will say one more thing before we keep going is they incentivize home ownership and they incent uh, per primary residence ownership and they incentivize you to obviously be married. So for example, with homes right now, the best thing, you know, nobody ever really talks about this is you can sell, if you're married, if you're a married couple, you can sell your primary residence completely tax-free. So as long as you live there for the last two years, two out of the last five years, oh, well, I should say it's up to $500,000. So if you bought a property for 300 and let's say you sold it for six or seven and you're married and you live there for two years, you don't have to worry about the tax bill on that ascension to wealth. And it's because of primary home ownership and something called the step-up in basis that we might get into a little bit later, that's one of the ways that middle, like lower middle income and lower income class people are actually able to transfer wealth down from one person to another is through home ownership. And it's because a home, if you think about it, is a forced savings account. Some people, you know, retirement is optional. Contributing to stocks is optional. But if you have a mortgage payment, it's a forced savings account, right? And that's one of the ways that those uh, lower income class people are actually able to transfer wealth down from one another. So I digress. Uh, that's the basics. Um, let me know how I could take it further. Oh man, that's awesome. Kim, do you want to take a swing first? I, I just took like half a page of notes. <laughs> I think um, I, one thing that uh, you triggered with your, with your um, latest soundbite there was I was thinking about um, what your, what your perspective is on paying off houses and interest rates. So I'll give you an example of why I'm asking. And then I'd love to just hear your perspective and your knowledge sharing on this. So we bought our Cape house at a 4% interest rate in 2019. Um, the house has appreciated, I think Dave, 69% in value, appraised value since then in three, three and a half years. Um, we refinanced in December, 2020. Um, to a 15-year 2.5% interest rate. So our cash flow is lower with the with the, the mortgage payments being a little higher, but we're also paying down that debt faster. And then we've our um, appraised value of that house has taken off. So we've been able to use that to leverage to go buy more assets, which is great. So I'm curious, just there's pros and cons to that. When it had the higher interest rate, we could also write off that interest, uh, you know, the interest payments. So we're paying mm -hmm. a lot less interest now, but we're also... Uh, paying off that loan faster and getting more um, equity out of the house. So I think that we kind of straddled two different strategies there, Dave. And you know, right now we're in that still that 15 year loan now, now 13 years left on it. But I want to just give it as an example of what, where I'm coming at from that example. I want to hear your perspective on interest rates, on the term of the, the loan and what strategies you can employ for your houses, whether it's a primary or a secondary house. Yeah, so I would say it's personal finance is personal. And so that to me, outside of the tax is, a, is really a personal finance question. I will say that 
I actually just, this is very timely because one of my recent podcasts talked about leverage in real estate. And I use the example of either buying one $100,000 house all cash or buying five $100,000 houses using the same $100,000 in cash. And the math works out that if you use leverage, you're going to win 99 times out of 100. But the, the second piece of that is the emotional behavior and the logic in which humans react and respond. And so to that is, okay, yeah, you, you could pull leverage out of that property and use it to buy more property. And the cash flow from those properties is going to help you pay off the now higher mortgage payment in that property. But that's in a perfect world if everything goes well. You know, what if it doesn't? So if, if you're running those analysis, what I tell people is run those every single scenario. Okay, you're pulling money out, higher interest, right? A lower term, higher monthly payments, so less cash flow for that property. But can you take that money and then um, buy more real estate? Does that cash flow cover that mortgage plus your mortgage that you now have? And how closer is it getting you to your goals? Because maybe your goals are, maybe that purchase was a lifestyle choice. Maybe that was you know, a primary home. So like I'm dealing the same thing with my with my dad right now who's about to retire but you know retirement account went from say a million dollars down to 700,000 in in, the, in about a year. And so it's like now we have to kind of change his strategy a little bit. Um do we lever before we wanted to pay down the primary residence, but hey, it's at a 2.8% interest rate. So you're not you, you know you're not really rushing to pay that money off or refinance out of that 2.8% but can you take that money that you would have paid to use to pay off the house or that lower rate and take that and buy cash flow? And so it's this analysis that um, if you're very familiar with Excel, I would I would recommend learning Excel and learning how to do time value of money. And this is what I like live and breathe is running those comparisons because in a perfect world, it will always make sense to if you lever into more assets to produce more cash flow, you will come out ahead. But what if it doesn't? Like what if um and I think the best example would be, you know, in 2020 and 21, even I saw some things like on my end where I wasn't totally understanding and not too comfortable. So for example, like I saw people buy six, $700,000 properties only making, let's say 150,000 W2, not, not that 150,000 is a lot of money, but, you know, buying a 600, $700,000, you know, and having a, you know, three $3,500 payment, $3,000 payment. Well, what happens when the revenue doesn't come in? Do you have your six to nine months of emergency fund? Do you have your reserves saved up? That's another question too. So it's just a list of these questions to be able to like break down that uh, that answer. But it's all dependent upon that person, like the single person. There's uh, just the same way that we talked about no nobody's fingerprints are the same. No two persons like investing strategy should be the same either. Yeah, there's probably no like carbon copy template. Um, do you find you know, because obviously there are a million different investing strategies and then there's hybrids of them. I mean, there's, there can be podcast shows just dedicated to that one topic, but do you find that there's ever, um, from a tax perspective, um, do you find that uh, investors seem to benefit more from a, a, a you know a tax savings perspective from doing like short-term rental over long-term rental or flips or um, you know I personally typically don't do flips because of ta the taxes like I just I'm not getting enough you know juice out of why I like real estate but do you find that there's certain um, strategies real estate investing strategies that um, with those strategies, you get to 
enjoy the fruits of tax benefits more than others? Yeah, I would say, you know, the higher your ordinary business income or your W-2 is, the more beneficial some sort of tax strategy is going to be for you. Because when you talk about being in a 35% federal bracket, and then, you know, God forbid you're in like California where they have a super high tax rate, you know, you could be paying 47 to 48% of income tax on every single dollar that you make. So tax strategy is ultimately important there. As far as breaking it down, I would say the name of the game is get those tax deductions in years where you're in high income, right? You're working your jobs, both of you are full-time working, right? Get your tax deductions now, accelerate those deductions. And so, and then ultimately sell or dispose of those assets, have those income recognition events when you're in years of lower taxable income. So normally what I see it is both spouses are working full-time, really good jobs. They're taking their deductions. One spouse maybe quits to go real estate full-time. Now their tax bracket is a little bit lower because one spouse isn't working a W-2. And then ultimately both spouses are now real estate full-time, tax brackets lower. That's when you can start you know, selling or you don't really have to be deferring as much as possible anymore because you're in a lower bracket situation. So that's tax strategy 101. I would say as far as let's break down the fixing and flipping versus the buying and holding because that's super important, right? So I talked before, it's not how much money you make, but it's how you make it. So let's, I'm gonna run you through two, uh, two, two scenarios. And I actually did this on one of my podcasts. I think it's called fix and flip versus buy and hold. And that's literally what it's called. So, and, and we'll, by the way, the, the okay. podcast that Ryan is referencing both the uh, leverage of real estate, as well as the fix and flip versus buy and hold. We'll put both of those uh, links in our show notes, both in the podcast and YouTube. So people can get to those. All right. So let's, let's assume, you know, let's assume I'm in a 24% uh, federal bracket and plus my 5% state. So let's say I'm in a 30% tax bracket. So if I fix and flip a property, let's say I, you know, I, I buy it for 70, put 30 into it. It's worth 200. I sell it. Right. So I have a hundred thousand dollar gain. Um, I'm paying taxes hundred. I'm taking my hundred thousand dollar gain, multiplying it by 30%. And so at the end of the day, I have to pay 30 grand to uncle Sam and then I get to keep 70 in my possession, right? Liquid cash to move on to the next deal. If I'm buying and holding, it's a whole different ballgame. I'm buying at 70, I'm putting 30 into it. It's worth 200 now. But if I get a tenant in there and I refinance, I can pull my equity out, let's say 80% loan to value. I can pull my money out of there and it's not a taxable event. So number one, I don't have as much money in my hand as I would have if I flipped it and sold it. But I also don't have that tax burden of, hey, I made a hundred, but now I got to send 30 to Uncle Sam. And so that's why I say it's not how you, it's not how much, but how is if you do, because there could be a, a scenario where you're doing five or six burrs every single year and you're not paying anything in taxes because you have no taxable events. You're not, you're, you're boosting your net worth, but there's nothing on paper that triggers a taxable event. And I think that's the same, like people will realize that within real estate, fixing and flipping is the most expensive way to make money. Fixing and flipping, like wholesaling, that's the most expensive way to make money because it's all uh, income, self-employed income, tax at the highest rates versus your short-term rentals, your Airbnbs, long-term rentals, buy and hold is less tax implications there. And, and fix and flips is a ton of work to then have to go get taxed. <laughs> and if you're doing it across the country, not only are you a little bit psycho and I've been that person, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's a lot of work. And when you see that money go away after you've just 
benefited all the people that Ryan said at the beginning of the podcast, and then you're kind of left at the end holding the buck kind of stinks. So um, I would say fix and flips, your silent partner is Uncle Sam, right? Because every, you know, whatever your profit is going to them. Now, of course, there's strategies around that, right? So we'll get into that for uh, long-term rentals first. So for your average person, okay, I'm going to say this, making less than whether single or married, if you're making uh, more than $150,000 combined, you don't have any immediate tax benefits from owning long-term rental real estate. And it's because you're limited to the losses that you're able to deduct on those properties. Now, sure, you're going to get the advantage of having some depreciation, the capital gain, you're going to be able to borrow against the property. But as far as like being able to offset your W-2 or your business income with your rental real estate, you're not going to be able to do it if your income is more than 150 grand, unless you're what's called a real estate professional. So a real estate professional is somebody who works all day, every day in a real estate activity. So there's 11 different types. There's like a leasing, you could be an agent, a wholesaler, construction, property management. Uh, you could do fix and flips full time. If you work in real estate full time, you're designated as a real estate professional. And what they're able to do is now they don't have this, this rule where if they make more than 150, they're limited to the losses that they can take. In fact, they can make as much money as they want as a real estate professional, invest in rental properties and use those losses to offset their business or agent income. I see, the, I see this the most, uh, I would say two examples, uh, people who are real estate agents full-time and people who fix and flip full-time. So like I have one real estate agent client who's uh, out of Arizona, probably makes a quarter million dollars a year at the real estate agent firm. Uh, and buys one or two rentals a year that doesn't reduce all of his tax liability, but a lot. And I would say he's taking that you know quarter million that he's making, buying rental properties with it, and those rental property losses are offsetting his income, and he's able to save sixty to seventy thousand dollars a year in taxes by doing that. The largest client, the largest scale that I have, and this is what's awesome, is if you're married, only one of you needs to qualify as a real estate professional in that relationship in order to take those real estate professional benefits. So for example, like I have a client that works a uh, CEO of a large investment bank, $3 million salary, right? His spouse qualifies as a real estate professional. His spouse is the one that manages all the properties, does the guest work, does the, you know, the cleaning on the properties, the turnover, et cetera, qualifies as a real estate professional. And then they're able to offset his large W-2 and save, we're talking $500,000, $600,000 a year in taxes as, so as long as you're giving back in the economy. So for real, for people who are full-time in real estate for their job and they're buying rental real estate properties, they need to understand real estate professional status because it is the golden goose egg of the tax code for real estate people. And how crazy this is, is I hosted a boot camp last month with another CPA who's a real estate CPA. And there was a lady on there, I can't say her name, but she go and I charge a pretty penny for this course. Don't get me wrong. It's like $700 for the day. But the best fulfillment I got from that was she goes, what you taught me today, I'm going to save six figures in taxes a year for the rest of my working career. And I was like, I was like, wow. And so if you're full-time in real estate and you're also owning properties, you need to check out, at least look at my podcast on real estate professional status. I don't know what episodes they are, but they're on there. And I, deep dive. And I talk all about this. It's, it is, if there's a more part of the tax code that benefits rich and wealthy people, I don't know about it. It's got to be that. Oh, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode and interview with Ryan Bakey. 
This interview we ended up taking for close to an hour and a half. So we actually broke it into two parts. So this first part, just to kind of recap, we've walked through Ryan's career, how he got started as an investor and a consultant, and now uh, runs a firm doing tax strategy specifically for real estate investors. All of the links, everything that we've discussed, we're going to put right into the show notes. And uh, in our second part, which will be released next Tuesday, we're going to spend the next half hour to 40 minutes really diving deep into some of the more advanced tax strategies that Ryan has deployed for his clients. So before we finish this up, I'm going to take the ending of our, the final ending of our interview, which goes over how you can find Ryan and get in contact with him. And we'll play it again after the second piece or the second episode um, of this interview. So everyone, thank you again for joining us. This was a fantastic episode. This was super fun for me to be able to uh, record and interview Ryan on. And be sure to listen to the end. And don't forget to stay tuned for next week when we go into the second half of the interview. Thanks, everyone. Man, Ryan, how? tell us all the ways that people can find you, reach out to you, follow you, and get all your content and information along with that it'll be in the show notes, but how can people find you? Yeah. So I'm on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok at, at learn like a CPA, uh, podcast, Spotify, YouTube is the learn like a CPA show. And I even have my own Facebook group. It's uh, tax strategies for real estate investors. So those are ways you guys can get in contact with me with me. I also have my website. You can download some of my free tools. That's learn like a CPA.com. And uh, if you just reach out with a DM, I would, I'm probably going to respond. I normally respond during my workout sets. So if I don't respond this day, I'll get to it the next day or the day after. So. Love it. And if anybody wants to get into syndicating, give Ryan a call, make him be part of it. Let's get ahead of the one year goal here. Right. Let's Um, do it. Well, Ryan, thank you so, so much. This may or may not get broken into two episodes, but absolutely love to have you on again. There's still a lot left that was unspoken about just in the interest of time and want to be considered your schedule. I know you're busy, but seriously, thank you Um, for everyone out there. Again, this is the Hassle-Free RE podcast. This was uh, Ryan Bakey uh, from Learn Like a CPA. And I'm sure you'll be seeing him online or speaking at different events and put yourself out there. Try going to some because there's a lot to learn. So thank you so much.